Welcome um, to all of you. Uh, I know Pam's already said that, but I, I sense uh, from looking down from here that there are uh, some people at least here who, who are maybe here for the first time or certainly haven't been here very often. It's, it's very good to have you with us today. Sometimes when I stand at the front here speaking, I feel a little bit bad knowing that you guys are sitting down on, on hard wooden seats with just a, a thin wafer uh, between you and the, the hard wood. Um, probably keeps me shorter, you know, I'm sort of thinking, can't be very comfortable down there, better stop soon. But now that you've got three inches of foam under your bottom there, I think we, we throw the watch away and just uh, get leisurely and... Well, we'll see. Um, I hope you're a bit more comfortable than you maybe have been um, over the, the years. We're going to come and look at God's Word together, and I think it's important once in a while that we remember what, what that means. It, it means we're coming to a, a book that is like no other book. Uh, we believe that it's a gift from God where He reveals Himself to us and to anybody who wants to find him. Um, and we believe that that moment of clarity, that revelation comes particularly uh, when we're open to his living presence with us, that he would be here with us, that he would speak to us by his spirit. So let's, let's ask him to come and to speak to us today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for, for the gift of your word, for, for something that we can have before us, a, a recorded uh, revelation of your work in this world and, and all that you've done for us and all that you long for us. Uh, but Lord, we need your help to, to understand it and, and even more than that, to, to, to enter into the way of life uh, that, that we're welcome to there. So, Lord, help us today to hear your word, to understand it, and to take it to heart. Amen. Edward VIII was king of the United Kingdom and the British Dominions, as it was called at the time. He was the emperor of India also, and he was all of that from the 20th of January in 1936 until his abdication on the 11th of December in 1936. A reign of 325 days, one of the shortest reigning monarchs in British and Commonwealth history. He was never crowned. That might be useful to file that away for a table quiz or a pub quiz that you're at sometime in the future. Looking back on his boyhood, he said, my father, and by that we, we know him as King George. He said, my father was a strict disciplinarian. Sometimes when I'd done something wrong, he would admonish me saying, dear boy, you must always remember who you are. The king was convinced that it was only when his son uh, remembered that he was a royal prince, that he was heir to the throne, that he would behave uh, accordingly and appropriately. As God's people, we must remember who we are. So far in Paul's letter to the church of Corinth, he said a few different things about who God's people are. I choose a couple just now to remind us. 
in verse 2 of the opening chapter, he calls Christians those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. These Christians in Corinth were an entirely new kind of people. They were to reflect God's character. They were to, to show Corinth what God is like. They were to be God's alternative to everything else on offer in that city. Chapter 3, verse 16, Paul tells the believers in Corinth that they are the temple of God's Holy Spirit. God's Spirit lives in you, he says. Paul says, this, this gathering of yours, this is the place where the living God is to be found in Corinth. That's who you are. You're a holy people. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. By the time we get to, to the part of the letter that we're in now, Paul is dealing with particular aspects of behavior in the church that demonstrate that they've forgotten who they are in Corinth. Behavior that's not in keeping with their true identity. So last week, David looked with you at chapter 5, at their sexual immorality. They were not acting as God's holy people in that regard. And here today, when we read about dodgy business and about litigation, we see that they're not providing the alternative that they ought to provide to the city of Corinth. They've forgotten who they are. We'll understand this passage better if we're entirely clear about what's happened and what Paul then says about what's happened. Let's, let's try and get the scenario first of all. Apparently one member of the church, let's call him Mr. A, he's defrauded or cheated another member, Mr. B. And in order to get justice, the defrauded or cheated Mr. B has taken Mr. A to the civil court. And the civil court, by the way, doesn't happen tucked away in, a, in a, some building somewhere in the city. It happens in the, the marketplace for all to see. So in Paul's eyes, this event, this series of events, is a complete failure for everyone. For Mr. A, for Mr. B, and for the Corinthian church, nobody comes out of this with any credit. And let's tackle the passage this morning by having a look to see what Paul says to each of those three parties. It's interesting to see where Paul begins, because he doesn't begin with Mr. A, the guy who did the, the wrong, that started the whole catalog of events. He doesn't begin with Mr. B, the guy who's been wronged. He begins with the whole community, the church. He asks in 6 verse 1, If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Paul's not, in this instance, uh, we need to be clear about this, he's not saying that civil courts are evil and that Christian courts are somehow perfect. No, he's asking a different question. He's asking, why would people who are committed to living for God and under God's authority go before a court that doesn't recognize God's authority and ask that court to help them settle the, the matters that are causing them dispute? By allowing internal disputes to be taken to external courts, the church fails to be the church. 
And Paul's really angry about this. You, you can't see it very well in the NIV or in the English. In the Greek, Paul's saying something like, how dare somebody do such a thing, the gall of that person. In verses 2 to 5, Paul elaborates then on that basic point, and he explains that the church should be able to judge disputes within its own ranks because the church is a training ground for judging the whole world. Do you not know, verse 2, that the saints will judge the world? When he'd been with them in Corinth, Paul had told the, the young believers there, the young church, about the glorious future that awaits them. They were to belong to God in the present age, but then to reign with him in the age to come. Because they were united with Jesus, and one day Jesus would be the judge of all the earth, they too with him would judge all the earth. If you're to judge the earth, Paul continues in verse 2, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Brothers and sisters, isn't it true that we have far too small a vision of what God has called us to in Jesus Christ? Look at what he says in verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? A time's coming when we're going to be so much drawn into the life of God and participate with him so much in his work that we will be judges of all things in this earth and beyond. How much more, Paul asks, if we're judging the earth and the angels, how much more the things of this life? In verses 4 to 5, he returns to their actual situation and he tells them what should happen when there are disputes in the church. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. These guys don't need to be high flyers. They don't need to be experienced lawyers. Even, even an average godly churchgoer, an average godly person can help discern these cases. I say this to shame you, he says. Is it possible that there's no one among you who's wise enough to judge a dispute among unbelievers? Picture for a moment the, the scene uh, the household of a man who's just been appointed a high court judge. His two daughters, and they're fighting the bit out, and he just does what dads do best and ignores the row, hoping that mum will, will sort it out. The, the screaming escalates, the, the scratching and the hair pulling starts to go a bit mad, but he all the while leaves his wife to sort it out. And Paul's frustration here with the church is, is a little like the frustration of the wife in that household when she shouts at her husband, you're about to be made a high court judge. You're going to make decisions here of national importance. Surely you ought to be able to sort out this, this petty dispute between your two daughters. Put your paper down, get out of your chair and do something about it. That's something like what Paul is saying here. You're going to judge the world and the angels. Sort out the in-house stuff. 
It's a challenging passage, isn't it? For a start, it cuts across the idea that church is perfect. It takes for granted that there's stuff that needs sorted out. Sometimes I hear people saying from time to time that they're frustrated by church, this sense that everybody has everything together and that everything always appears to be wonderful. And I have to say, I'm not sure which church they're talking about. Because that's not the church I go to or, or lead in. As I'm involved in the life of this community, I'm very conscious of people who are frustrated with our church life, of people who are frustrated with each other, and who are struggling to come to terms with their differences. And perhaps you'll allow me to speak frankly about how I think we're getting on in this area. I'd say we've had some success and known some failure. As a church leader, you won't know much about this because it's not something that that needs to be known. I've had occasion when I've faithfully tried to put into practice what Paul preaches here. I've gone to two members in conflict and I've challenged them about their behavior and I've urged them to be reconciled. I've gone to members whose behavior has fallen below the moral standards that God calls us to and I've urged them to repent. And on those occasions I've had to rely heavily on God's wisdom and tried to apply the teaching of God's word in passages like this and in Matthew 18. And praise God when that kind of work is done, not always, but oftentimes, there are healthy outcomes. And if there have been successes, I'm sure there have been failures too. Times when I and and maybe collectively as a church leadership, we have not been quick enough to ensure that problems are addressed in the church family. There will have been times when we've maybe allowed conflict to continue, when we've turned a blind eye, when it should have been dealt with. So I'm asking you to pray for yourselves as members of this church family and for all those who are charged with leadership here. Let's pray for ourselves, every last one of us, that we'll be careful about bringing conflict and strife and division into our church family. And pray for those who have responsibility for for creating a culture where conflict is dealt with well. Let's pray for ourselves and for our leaders. In verse 6, Paul reminds us why all this matters. He says that when one brother goes to law against another, it destroys our witness before those who don't yet believe. Look at them. They're out of the game, fighting the game. 
There's nothing of the glory of God in a community like that. We've thought about what Paul says to the whole of the Corinthian church, this community where the disagreement has happened. When we go to verse 7, and especially the second part, Paul turns his attention to Mr. B. Do you remember? He's the guy who was offended by Mr. A. Paul says in verse 7, instead of going to the public courts, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? In Paul's mind, when Christians take each other to court, everybody loses. Mr. B, whether you win or lose this action in the court, everything's already lost. Even if you win in court and damages are rewarded to you from Mr. A, you lose because you were not able to endure your loss. Paul says to the church in Corinth, you lose through this action going before a public tribunal. You're airing your dirty laundry in public. You're giving up your God-given identity as a holy people. You're no longer a real alternative for this city that you live in. This, this action is destroying the temple of God. When things like this are happening among you, there, there's no power of God in your community. Mr. A, you're defeated too. And as we read on in the end of the passage, we find that Paul says to Mr. A, by your wrongdoing, which started off this whole unholy mess, you've suffered a defeat. You might have got some sort of temporary advantage by ripping off uh, whatever you did here, this business transaction that's gone wrong, this, this cheating. You might have some temporary advantage through that, but you stand now in great, great danger. And in the final verses of our passage, Paul describes how he's in danger of losing his internal, eternal inheritance. Paul shows us in, in this short passage that when there's fighting in the church, and particularly when it goes public, everyone loses. Paul's teaching here and, and what he says, particularly to the wronged party, I wonder, does it make any sense to us at all? Why not rather be wronged? Does that sound bizarre? Unfair? Unlikely? Naive? It ought not to. Not for followers of Jesus Christ. What was it Jesus said? If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Paul has clearly taken Jesus' teaching to heart as he teaches here and in Romans 12. Romans 12, he says, do not be overcome by evil. When evil comes against you, don't yourself go evil. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Who are we? We're a holy people. 
a different kind of community altogether. Our standards ought to be different from the world. The big question for, for us about life is not how do I get what I'm entitled to and how do I make sure no one gets the better of me. That is entirely the question of any person. That's a normal, normal way to view life, but it's not our way For us, the big question of life is how can I experience more of the grace of Jesus Christ and how can I live it out before a watching world? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? I ask myself, why not? Indeed. We've seen what Paul has to say to the church And we've seen what he has to say to Mr. B, who's been defrauded. What does he say to Mr. A, the guy who started all of this? The one who cheated his Christian brother? Well, Paul tackles him head on in verses 8 to 10 of our passage. He identifies Mr. A and others in the church who are behaving like him. And he says in verse 8, You yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brother. And in verses 9 to 10, he reminds the Corinthians of the outcome of persistently evil behavior. He says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's talking to Mr. A, but he's talking to to all of us who who repeatedly and wantonly uh, sin. The list of 10 sins that he focuses on in verses 9 and 10 It looks like it covers a lot, but in a sense, I think it's quite specific. Paul's writing because he knows Corinth. There's a lot of significant sins that aren't on that list. So four of those sins are of a sexual nature, and we've said a few times in this series, sexual sins seem to be a big problem in the city and also in the church in Corinth. At least a couple of the sins, namely theft and swindling, relate to the kind of thing that we've been talking about here today. And idolatry, greed, drunkenness, and slander, they'll all be mentioned, and they'll all be in evidence throughout Paul's letter. So Paul is identifying the the sins, the the actual real-life sins of the church in Corinth, and he's very explicit about them. But I find his approach here really, really helpful. There's two balancing aspects to what Paul has to say about this this gross sin in the Corinthian church. First of all, he does not downplay its seriousness. He doesn't say, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Other people or other churches get hung up on that sort of stuff, but we don't round here. He says, watch yourselves. Choosing consistently to live outside of the will of God in these ways, you risk losing your inheritance. There's a whole lot there about the eternal security of a believer and all that. Friends, we've got to let these warnings of Scripture stand and take them seriously. Don't, don't with some theological formula, write them off. Paul means what he's saying here. So on the one hand, Paul does not downplay the seriousness of sin, 
But notice then how he goes on at the very end of our passage with, with this large sin confronting them. He then reaches out to God's people and reminds them of God's much, much greater grace and his salvation. In verse 11, he uses three salvation verbs, three verbs that talk not what they have done, but what God has done. What God's done to make us into a holy people, a temple of his presence. He's washed us. The filth, the dirt that's there, it really is there. Washed. He's sanctified us. That means he's, he's lifted us out and he's made us something different. Different from what we used to be and different from those around us. Different. Sanctified. And he's justified us. That means he's put us on a right legal standing with him. We will receive our inheritance. We are his. Paul's been talking the whole way through our passage, the first 10 verses about what they have done. And in the last verse, by talking about what God has done, he reminds them who they are. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. Now live like it. Live like the new people of Christ. Stop living like the wicked. I need to finish. Uh, we're out of time here this morning. What have we learned? Well, very specifically, we've learned that we ought not to defraud each other or take advantage of each other. I hope we understand that. We've learned that in moments of difficulty and in conflict, we ought not to air our dirty linen outside of the community. We ought to hope to resolve it inside. And thirdly, I think we've seen a responsibility on the church collectively, but, but possibly the leadership, to ensure that we have a culture where we resolve our conflict well together. I think we've learned all those things and been reminded of them all today. But more importantly even than that, and overarching all of that, we've seen a call from Paul to become what we are. To live out our identity and our birthright, a washed and sanctified and justified holy people. A temple where God is and can be and will increasingly be at home. Brothers and sisters, can we make that our priority? To become the people who God has already made us and allowed us to be in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, we pray that you'd remind us today who we are.
We're in Christ. We're your sons and your daughters. We've received your endless grace. We're destined for a glorious future. And now help us to live in the light of all of that in the present. Show us, Lord, that we're not shaped by our past sins, but by your new grace. Show us that we're an entirely new creation. Show us who we are so that we might learn how to live. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.